Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. Great to see you. Maybe you can help me resolve the problem my daughter has. My four-year-old daughter has a very big problem. She asks me every night before sleep, if God has no ears and no eyes, how can God hear us and see us? And I am falling short in answering her. I want to honor my personal theological commitment to the incorporeality of divinity. God has no body, eyes, and ears. And I want to give a story or an analogy that will work for her to understand this idea that wherever she is, she is loved and seen and appreciated um, in ways that don't have eyes and ears. So when we get the conversation, please let me know how I should answer her. But let's start with a poll. Let's start with a little poll here together. What matters more to you? Most important question of your day. <laughs> your body or your soul? Your body or your soul? Number one, obviously my body. I don't believe in souls. Number two, both, but more my body. I think so much about exercise and diet and my physical appearance and my health. Number three, both, but more my soul. This is the center of my existence. Or four, obviously my soul, my body will die and is vanity, but my soul will live on. Now I'm not asking you prescriptively, what should we think more about? I'm asking you descriptively, which one do you think more about? Okay, very interesting. Wow, I didn't expect that. 0% here say they don't believe in souls. 0% on the other end say that the body is just vanity. And uh, as usual, we find I have an interesting uh, diversity in the middle. 29% say both, but more my body. And 71% say both, but more my soul. Okay, very interesting. Very interesting that um, um, we, are, we are consistently worried about pandemics and health and exercise and diet and our appearance. And we look in the mirror and we buy clothes. We do all kinds of things for our body our sleep, and yet what do we do for the health of our soul each day to protect it? Um, it's an interesting uh, challenge. And thankfully, 
Judaism embraces both. And we will have the debate, the debate of the century today, body versus soul. So friends, are humans to be defined primarily by our bodies and our physical features or by our soul, our deeper spiritual essence? If I ask this a different way, are my responsibilities to another more about the concern for the other's body or for the other's soul? Right from the creation story in Bereshit, we learn that humans are most certainly a combination of both body and soul. What does it say in Bereshit? God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the soul of life and man became a living being. So, right, got it? You got the two ingredients? I'm a horrible cook. I would mess up this recipe. But this recipe can't be messed up because it's two things. It's dust and it's breath, right? That's what humans were made of, dust of the earth. We are earthly beings, bodily beings. And then we are breath. We are nishima. Like right there, Genesis 2-7 tells us the essence of the human being. Rashi explains that this verse teaches that humanity emerges from both the upper and lower spheres, the body from the lower spheres and the soul from the upper spheres. But which will dominate the desires of the body or the aspirations of the soul? The great Torah commentator, the Kli Yakar, explains here on Genesis 2-7. If you haven't heard of Kli Yakar, he's worth checking out. The Kli Yakar writes, for the living soul is the eternal intellectual spirit. If you examine who breathed the soul into man, you will find that it refers to a divine soul from above. But the verse tells us that even though God breathed an intellectual living soul into man, nevertheless, in the beginning of his existence, man was simply another living spirit, like all other creatures. For man is born as a wild animal, and his perfection depends on the diligence of his efforts and the correctness of his choices when he matures with age. However, at the beginning of a person's existence, even though a living soul was already placed within him, the soul is not yet actualized, but is merely potential within him. That's very interesting, friends. The soul is not some pure actualized divine source. It is a potentiality. And if he does not yearn himself with diligence to wage God's war, he will remain on the level of an animal. But an ox or a sheep or goat is born with its full level of perfection on the day of its creation, and it does not perfect itself further. Get it? An animal is created perfect. A little puppy dog is born. A little butterfly emerges from the cocoon. It's perfect. It's just how God wants it to be. Humans? Uh-uh. Not perfect. The soul has potentiality, not actualization. Humans are a work in progress. So back to the Kliyakar. The Torah revealed this to us so that a person should not make the mistake of thinking that since he was born complete, he will achieve his perfection without effort. It is not so. Rather, everything depends on a person's actions. He always has the ability to exchange intellect for nature or nature for intellect. This is why the Torah does not say, this is why the Torah does not say about the creation of man, God saw that it was good because when man was created, it was not yet apparent. In what way he was good? Oh, very interesting. God says, it's Tov after days of creation. No, oh, that's good. That's good. But what's going on over there? It's not clear if humans are good. It's not clear. You know, it's actually kind of backwards. We see a baby. A baby is born. We say, oh, the baby is perfect. 
The baby is pure. The baby is perfect. We see an old person, a senior who's a shut in, shut in in a senior residence. We say, oh, this is a broken person. They're alone. They're exhausted. They have wrinkles. Their back hurts. Right? But isn't that kind of backwards? Nothing gets babies. I love babies. But according to the Kliyakar, the baby is only potentiality. Yeah, the baby has no flaws yet, but no virtues either. No virtues. The baby is beautiful because it has, hasn't experienced the sunlight, hasn't experienced human interaction. It just emerges from the womb. But the senior has experienced the breadth and depth of life. So why do we worship the baby skin? And yet we shun the, the, the wrinkled senior skin in a sense. Right. As, uh, and, and the Kliyakar is saying, no, actually, that baby might be a murderer. That, God forbid, that baby might be a tzaddik, might be a righteous person. We don't know. It's just potentiality. You can think it's perfect, but that's only on the bodily level. And then what do Jews do? The, the Jews, well, I, I don't want to do apologetics, uh, feminist apologetics, you know, that say a woman is born, a girl is born perfect and a boy isn't. But if you follow that line of thought, the idea that a boy needs a bris to then be kind of prepared. And a girl does a bodies doesn't need to be changed. It's an interesting, you know, conversation that will bracket this idea that a boy uh, needs to be kind of fixed Jewishly in a way that a girl doesn't need to be. Um, but um, um, anyways, going back to my daughter, my four-year-old, and I want to talk with her later. Um, she also says, Abba, Abba, I, I, almost every day, Abba, are humans animals? And I say, yes and no. Yes and no. Of course humans are animals, right? Our organs operate more or less the same way, right? We die, right? We are earthlings. We are animals. We are animals. And yet, no, we're also something beyond the animal kingdom. And the Kliyakar is touching on that here. But he didn't say what you think he'd say. He didn't say, oh, humans are born perfect. This is the pinnacle of society. Animals, oh, they're born as uh, nothing. You know, uh, you know, who cares about it? He says, no, animals are born perfect. Their potential is to operate by their animal nature. Humans are not. We have to transcend our animal nature. Okay, let's continue. One might have thought that since human beings have a soul, they are therefore pure and their actions are naturally good. But this is not the case, Kliyakar explains. The soul demonstrates potential, but the body has its own desires. Humans have the choice to live by body or by soul or by a combination of the two. Right? Do we just live by self-interest? I'm hungry, I'm tired, I feel sad, I feel happy. Right? Just in, in the realm of bodily experience? Or do we have an elevated experience that guides our day? For some, this is not just a simple duality, but a constant war. Here's how the Ram Chal explains. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Luzado, in his uh, famous, famous work, The Derech Hashem. The two are, are, are then in a constant state of battle. If the soul prevails, it not only elevates itself, but elevates the body as well. And the individual thereby attains his destined perfection. If he allows the physical to prevail, on the other hand, then besides lowering his body, he also debases his soul. Such an individual makes himself unworthy of perfection and thus divorces himself from God. He still has the ability, however, to subjugate the physical to his soul and intellect and thereby achieve perfection. Imagine, imagine in a marriage, if the only thing somebody wants in marriage is good food, good sex, good concerts, um, you, know, uh, um, you know, a back massage. Again, nothing wrong with those things. Um, but if there is no love, in, there's no intangibles, 
there's no intangibles um, that transcend the bodily comfort. What kind of a what kind of a relationship is this ultimately? You know, it's uh, it's it's similar with a child. The, the child relationship to the parent is so bodily early on, nursing and cuddling, and holding and hugging and swinging, and and then you get to the point where the child doesn't want to be touched so much. <laughs> the child doesn't want to be touched so much, and you figure, my goodness, like how are we going to have this new chapter of love that's not physical? You know, or you take a, again a marriage, and maybe in the first year there's a lot of intimacy. And after the first year, intimacy drops a little, maybe drops a little more, maybe it has certain sparks that return. But intimacy fades and you say, oh, how, how is this relationship going to remain um, passionate with less of a desire for intimacy, perhaps, um, or, or actualization of intimacy, physical. For, okay, friends, for others, so we saw for the Ramchal, there's a war. There's a war of body and soul. It's a war. For others, the body and soul are not in a war but rather are supporting one another. Here's how the Talmud tells this from Sanhedrin 91a. Antoninus, Antoninus says to Rebbe, he says to Rebbe, the body and soul can exempt each other in the heavenly judgment. How so? The body can say, it was the soul that is responsible for transgression. For since the day that it departed from me, I've been lying in the grave like an inert stone and I'm not capable of doing anything. The soul can say it was the body that transgressed since the day I separated from it. I've been soaring in the air like a bird and I'm not capable of sitting. Ah, very interesting. This is very existentialist, how um, uh, they kind of, uh, the different dimensions of self are arguing with each other, who's culpable. Um, Rebbe says to him, I will give you an analogy. This is like the case of a human king who had a beautiful orchard with delectable fruit. He placed two guards in the orchard, one lame and one blind. The lame one said to the blind one, I see beautiful fruit in the orchard. Come and place me on your shoulders and we will get some and eat it. The lame man rode on the blind man's shoulders and they fetched the fruits and ate them. Eventually, the owner of the orchard came and said, where are my beautiful fruits? The lame man said, do I have legs to walk with? The blind man said, do I have eyes to see? The owner immediately placed the lame man on the shoulders of the blind man and judged them as one. Similarly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will bring the soul and cast it into the body and judge them together. Okay, so that comes off a little bit harsh, a little bit judgmental, obviously. But this, nonetheless, there is this idea of a collaboration. It is a synergy. It is a merger, right? It is an acquisition um, that essentially, just like the, um, uh, the lame man, will be on the shoulders of the blind man and, neither, and they have no excuse because one can see and one can walk and together they can um, take care of their needs. So too, um, we have a body and soul that can help each other. The body can move us to, to do meets vote and other good things in the world that the soul cannot do. And the soul can reach spiritual heights that the body obviously doesn't have the capacity to do. The great 20th century Musar teacher, who you know I love to quote a lot, Rav Shlomo Volbi, explains the above passage as follows. The powers of the soul and the powers of the body are both guards of the beautiful orchard, which is man and his world. The only difference between them is that the powers of the body are blind, while the powers of the soul have sight. The drive to live impels us to take care of our health, and in dangerous situations, it activates all of our abilities to preserve our lives. The desire to reproduce impels us to establish a home and have children. Jealousy impels us to try to earn a respectable living. 
Love of children impels us to take care of our offspring and raise them. All of our capacities then are excellent guards for a person, but they do not know where they are guarding us. They are blind. The soul is the guard who has eyesight. It sees the goal and can give our lives direction for what to strive for, whom to serve and what to achieve. That is the soul's purpose in guarding the orchard of life to ensure that we do not use our inborn abilities in vain. Rather, we will know how to direct them toward our true goal. But the soul is lame. It does not have the ability to carry out its drives and dr desire on its own accord. For that purpose, it needs the body. Thus, the body and the soul complement each other in preserving man and his life. The body provides the abilities and the soul provides the form and direction. When the combination is complete, they both achieve their perfection. The blind powers of the body serve an exalted purpose and the soul's spiritual drive is actualized. Therefore, we should not belittle the forces that are contained within us. They are all crucial. We just need to strive for the right combination and the proper direction. So friends, you wouldn't see a professional athlete who has tiny little skinny weak legs and huge biceps and a massive back, nor would you see these huge calves and quads, but like a totally weak upper body, right? The athlete understands that the lower body needs the upper body and the upper body needs the lower body. And so too, the spiritualist, the Jew understands that the Jew needs a strong body and the Jew needs a strong soul. To only focus on one, to be a spiritualist that doesn't take care of their body is to neglect our human pursuit and to be obsessed with the body and not take care of the soul is to neglect the beauty of the ultimate potential for human actualization. So one might mistakenly conclude now that since the soul is so much loftier, that we are not concerned with the body. Yet the Rambam, Maimonides, who in typical Aristotelian fashion is far more interested in the mind than in the body, teaches. A person should ensure that his body is complete and strong so that his soul will be adequately, will be adequately fit to know God, because it is impossible to understand and fathom wisdom when a person is hungry, sick, or if one of his limbs is in pain. Rather, his body should complete and strong to serve God. And even when he is sleeping, a person should have the intention that he's allowing his mind and body to rest in order that he should not become sick, which would prevent him from serving God. Thus, his sleep becomes part of his service of God. Okay, so friends, yes, it's true. The Rambam doesn't think serving the body is an end in itself. And I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's fairly a, a good representation of the majority of Jewish thought. The body is ultimately a tool towards a higher goal. It's not an end in itself. Nonetheless, he does believe that we need to deeply care for this body. And um, again, not as an end in itself, but because of its potential to elevate the deeper potential of the human spirit. And so, by the way, this point about sleep, I wanna recommend it. You probably hopefully already have this practice. If you're like me and you take your phone into bed because um, you, know, you wanna set an alarm clock and you, know, you wanna check the very last message and maybe you wanna make a note to yourself. And if you're like me and you also wanna say a tefillah, you wanna say a prayer before bed or do a meditation before bed, as someone gave me the advice and as I continue to strive to follow, let the prayer be the last thing. Don't do the prayer meditation and then do the last phone check. Do the last phone check and then do the prayer or meditation um, so that our sleep can be more connected to this uh, avodah, 
towards this ultimate service and towards this ultimate healing. So indeed, friends, caring for the body is part of our service of God. A key element of the spiritual experience of Simchat Yom Tov, joy of the holiday, and Oneg Shabbat, delight of Shabbat, is to eat delicious food. I mean, this is not vain. This is not vanity. Like when, when people who love you cook for you, um, uh, they cook for a meal for you. Like this is not just like our body needs food. This is a deep act of love, a deep act of love. And, and it's not trivial that we make nice foods for the holiday and for Shabbat. That is a part of the joy of the holiday. That the tradition wants us to feel the joy of good food. That's how we experience Simcha. When we feed the body, we are feeding the Neshama Yetera, the extra soul that emerges on Shabbat. One might think that denying the body its physical pleasure makes one a more spiritual person. The Talmud disagrees. Living an ascetic life can in fact be transgressing. Here's what it says in Bamidbar. Oh, no, 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 that's not correct. Uh, that source is incorrect. Uh, uh, sorry about that. This is based on a verse in Bamidbar that we'll see, but this is a Talmudic passage based on that, because obviously we're recording the rabbi. Rabbi Eliezer HaKapar, the Rebbe, said, why does the Torah state and make atonement from him, the Nazarite, for he sinned against the soul, right? That's the part from Bamidbar 6.8. Against what soul did the Nazarite sin? It can only be because he denied himself wine. If then this man who did not did no more than deny himself wine is termed a sinner, how much more so is this true of one who is ascetic in all things? So of course, friends, if you don't drink wine because you're an alcoholic, if you don't drink wine because you don't like it, if you don't drink wine because it prevents you from doing things you wanna do, if you don't drink wine because it makes you cry or makes you yell or makes you sleepy, great. But if you don't drink wine because you want to deny yourself pleasure, then that would be like a sinner of the Nazarite, the Talmud says. We are not ascetics that deny ourselves pleasure. If you don't eat meat because you, you don't want to be cruel to animals, because you don't want to harm your environment, because you think it's bad for your health, great. But if you don't eat meat because you think God doesn't want your body to have pleasure, that's a sinner like the Nazarite, according to the Talmud here. God wants pleasure, obviously within boundaries. Now, to be sure, there's an authentic Jewish traditional approach toward asceticism. I don't want to deny it. There is asceticism still that we can't deny. There's a lot to say about that. Just think of Yom Kippur. Think of fast days, right? Think of other boundaries. Think of there being foods that Jews are asked not to eat. However, as we saw above just now, it can be argued that the dominant thrust of Jewish tradition is about the elevation and sanctification of rather than the deprivation of the body. I get it. The goal is not depriving the body, but elevating the body. On the other hand, we would certainly be skeptical of ideologies that make the pleasure of the body an end in itself. Going back to Ravobi, he teaches bodily sensation is the foundation of all Western culture, the worship of the body. That is what brought about the development of science, art, sculpture, and sports in ancient Greece. An indication of this is the gymnasium a place where sports were conducted by unclad athletes and from which their schools developed. The way of Torah begins with a person learning to view his body as a tool for the service of God, not solely for enjoyment. The holy books refer to the body as an encasement for holiness. So friends, I am not anti-sports. Let me say it again. I'm not anti-sports. Um, <laughs> I think it's a good thing that instead of gladiator events that kill each other and bullfights, we've evolved towards like, 
um, you know, people playing sports and people. But I have to tell you, I was recently at a sporting event. I was recently at a sporting event. And I felt so out of place. I was so overwhelmed. These people are really into it. They're really into it. They stand up. They sit down. It's like they're in shul. They, it's third down. So you stand up. You stand up for third. And then you sit down. It's like it's a, now it's a lane. You stand up. Okay, sit down. Now it's Kaddish. Stand up. I, I stand up, screaming, going for, and you, you get pulled into it. It's like a religion. It really is a religion, you know. So again, no critique of that. It's all it's all in good fun. And again, it's much better than um, than the, the desire for competition that was in ancient days. Nonetheless, this idea from ancient Greece that that really uh, permeated Western society was really the worship of the body, of the bathhouse, of physical beauty, of the of the strength of the alpha male, the bodily strength of the alpha male. And, um, and Jews offer a balance to that. We say, look, no, we're a people of the mind and soul. Yes, the body also, right? But we can't become ultimately obsessed with this. Um, and that was also the promiscuity that was involved. You know, people who really uh, operated like animals sexually, right? You just fulfill every sexual urge as it emerges um, with anyone or anything, you know, a teacher with a student um, or, or without any other boundaries because it's only natural. Sex is only natural. It's only good. And so do it as much as you want with whoever you want, right? And Jews were like, no, yeah, sex is natural. Sex is good. But there's got to be some boundaries. You can't abuse someone. God forbid you rape someone. You can't take advantage of a student. You can't just have sex anywhere you want with anyone you want. Like, like we believe in, mon in, in monogamy. I mean, obviously, there's polygamy in our, in our biblical tradition. Actually, you want to know something that um, uh, Rabbi Vadia Yosef was asked, um, you know, because the ban had expired on, on, on monogamy, excuse me, on polygamy. Rabbi Avadi Yosef in the mid 20th century after a war in Israel where many soldiers had died, uh, many male soldiers had died and the women wanted to re reinstate poly uh, polygamy. The women, the Israeli women wanted polygamy because there were so few good men they could find. So they wanted to reinstate polygamy and Rabbi Avadi Yosef wanted to do it. He wanted to do it, but he also really wanted to be chief rabbi and, and that would look really bad. And so he didn't do that um, anyways. Uh, anyways, so that's, uh, so, that's, so that's Greece. Okay, we're, we're almost uh, to the conversation here. We care about the body, not on, on a hedonistic end in itself, but rather as a vehicle toward the spiritual good. The Torah does not prohibit everything that is wrong and inappropriate. In fact, the Ramban, Nachmanides, famously taught that one could be a Naval Birshut HaTorah, a glutton with the permission of the Torah specifically pointing to overindulgence in food and in sexual relations, right? The Torah doesn't prohibit everything bad. The Torah allows us to do things that would be bad. Um, so the human body does not entirely resemble God since God has no body, according to virtually every Jewish thinker. The soul, on the other hand, is indeed quite similar to God. The Talmud explains in Brachot, just as God fills the entire world, so does the soul fill the entire body. Get You like that? The body is a microcosm of the, of the entire universe. Just as God sees, but is not seen, so too the soul sees, but is not seen. Just as God gives nourishment to the entire world, so too the soul gives nourishment to the entire body. Just as God is pure, so too the soul is pure. Just as God dwells in the inner chambers, so too does the soul dwell in inner chambers. Let the one who has these five things come and praise the one who has these five things. That's kind of cool, right? Just as God is hidden to the eye, so too the soul is hidden from the mind. The Zohar teaches that the deepest truth about the universe is that which we cannot see with the eyes or the faces, but only through the eyes of the soul. 
And so for some, the goal in life is to primarily use the body as a vehicle to actualize the soul. Consider this teaching of the Ramchal. If the purpose of the creation of man had been for his station in this world, it would not have been necessary for such a distinguished and sublime soul to be placed in him. The soul is greater than the angels themselves, and certainly it does not derive any enjoyment from any of the pleasures of this world. That is what the sages taught in the Midrash Kohelet. And the soul will also not be filled. That This is analogous to an ordinary citizen who marries the royal princess. Even if he brings her everything in the world, it means nothing to her, since she is the king's daughter. Similarly with the soul, even if we bring it all the physical delights of the world, they mean nothing to it since it comes from the upper spheres. So, okay, friends, so that is our relationship to self. How about relationship to others? Do we care about other people's bodies or souls more? Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, one of the greatest halakhic authorities of the 20th century, taught that through modeling, we can affect the souls of others. He says in, in Drash Moshe, thus a person should understand that the soul inside him is holy and pure. It has the ability to influence and sanctify his body. When he is sanctified, he will also exert an influence on his surroundings so that anyone who associates with him will learn from his deeds and will also become holy and pure. And thus he will bring sanctity to the world. So interesting enough, in Jewish eschatology, there is concern for both the body and the soul in the afterlife. For the body, this is the resurrection of the dead. For the soul, this is the concept of Gilgulim, of reincarnation, and Olam Haba the world to come, the, the world of souls. The human body is most certainly physiologically complex, but there's only one name for the body. The soul, on the other hand, may be deemed even more complex by virtue of the fact that it has five names and dimensions. The nefesh is the soul, the ruach is the spirit, the neshama is the breath force, the yechida, the singularity or oneness, and the chaya, the life force. A body is just a body, it's a goof. But a soul has five names, five dimensions. It's very complex. In the end, in the end, to conclude here, friends, we see that many Jewish thinkers embrace a duality and a binary. Some even suggest there is a war or a battle in place. But we might also challenge the binary of body versus soul. Perhaps the two are more interconnected and intertwined than we might imagine or experience. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter famously taught that another person's physical needs are my spiritual needs. This is to say that we are indeed focused on our souls as individuals, but the way we do that is through the care of others' bodies. That is the great intersection of Jewish spirituality and Jewish social justice, right? That my spiritual mandate is not to take care of someone else's soul, but to take care of someone else's welfare of their body. Do they have health care? Do they have shelter? Do they have food? Do they have clothes? Do they have protection? That's what spiritually lifts me up, not by converting them to some ideology, right? I go out and I neglect someone's body. I leave them in poverty, but I convert them to my religion. No, that would be a distortion of Judaism. When we construct a more just society that honors the bodies of others with this access to healthcare, food, water, rest, our souls are elevated. One of the most unique aspects of Jewish thought is that both the body and soul are crucial to our avodat Hashem. Our, our ultimate service and our actualization of our potential. Being completely soulful without the body does not make sense in Jewish thought in this world. On the other hand, performing deeds without any spiritual intentionality is certainly not a noble pursuit either. 
we need to learn to resist the temptations of hedonism in society today and of radical spirituality that neglects the body as well. We are to strive for a healthy dose of both. Okay, friends, I'm gonna start by reading. Um, oh, no, that, that chat message was sent only to me, not to the group, so I'm not gonna read that, but I, I will appreciate that for me. Um, so thank you for that. Okay, friends, unmute yourselves. I'd love to hear from you. Hi, Rabbi, this is Eric. Uh, Hi, Eric. This, uh, one I was, this was one I was really looking forward to, but this is also very, um, it's a very complex subject, and complex debate. Um, I'm curious as to know what elements of Jewish mysticism that you haven't cited, that, and you gave a great citation, but that have also discussed about uh, the evolution of the debate of, of the body versus soul, because I know Jewish mysticism, while has sometimes is a couple of years old, but also has been more commercialized and become more mainstream. So what have they said that about the body versus soul that kind of like, um, that kind of the kind of complements and goes on beyond the, the different um, perspectives that you've shared? Amazing. So um, um, I, I may have missed part of the question, so please help me if I did. I think what you asked was, how did the emergence of Jewish mysticism in Jewish thought um, complement the, the ideas that existed already? Was that correct or did I get that wrong? Yeah, I, I, I butchered it a little bit, yes, yes. No, 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 I, no, no, I butchered it, you were clear, thank you. Um, so, um, you know, it's very interesting actually. It's very interesting that um, some of the er early Kabbalists uh, really were ascetics. Uh, many, of, many of the Kabbalists were and are ascetics that Again, they believe that that the um, that the elevation of of the um, of the soul uh, requires a deprivation of the body. The more, and it makes sense. The more we think about body, the less space we have to think about soul, right? The more we just eat and uh, think about our bodily needs, we're just distracted from a higher a higher realm. However, Hasidut emerges, building off that Jewish mystical approach and introduces a fascinating concept called Avodah Bagashnut, right? In, 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 in the prior world, there was a, um, there was a tension, Ruchniut and Gashnut. Gashnut is physicality, what we call today being materialistic. Oh, you're so materialistic. All you want is to buy new Apple products and nicer cars. You're so materialistic, right? Why don't you be more spiritual, right? They said Avodah Bagashnut, that Gashnut, physicality, materialism is good. It is good when it becomes a stepping stone. We need it. They said, we serve ultimately through the, and so eating now becomes a great spiritual act. Eating is not like some low level animalistic thing. Eating is a way to access a higher spiritual realm. They do the same thing with sexuality, with sexual experience as they do with eating. Um, and they do the same thing with um, kind of the body and prayer and in spiritual life and meets folks. The way we like energize our body physically um, in order to ultimately uh, raise it up to a higher level. I was, I was just uh, reading a passage in the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidut, who really develops this so beautifully about this idea of how like we need to physically arouse the body in prayer, like really kind of jump and move and sway and shuckle. And then when you get to the spiritual state, then silence, then no motion, no movement then you have to be completely still. 
And so this is not like a spiritual, this is not like a, a, a physical tradition, like a yoga. That's like, oh, it's all about the body to get there. You got to be constantly in a yoga position or constantly moving or running. It's also not like a meditative tradition that says, just sit and breathe. It's about activating the body radically in order that then you pause the body in order to, to get there spiritually. And so lots more to say about, about Eric's great question. But I think that is one of the... Um, one of the amazing ideas that 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 merged that, that that emerged there, and that is also why um, the the this Jewish mystical approach is indeed very concerned with body. Um, they're very concerned with a man's beard. The beard is very important. I mean, that might sound like just a holy thing. That's a bodily thing. That's uh, that's the body. They're concerned with um, they're concerned with how men and women dress, right, in a certain way. Mystics. Um, they're concerned with spiritual water going into the mikvah, right? Jewish mystics are very concerned with the rituals of the body, obviously. Um, and again, food and, 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 and related things. And so it's very, that, that is one of the great insights of Jewish mysticism, of, of how bodily focused it is uh, uh, while still being a mystical tradition. Rabbi? Hi, hi Michael. How does the concept of the soul, is that in a sense preparing for the concept of the afterlife? even upon death or with the coming of the Messiah, we're supposed to go, is it the soul that's the actor of that and how we develop our soul kind of guides us in after death? Ah, ah, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so, so, um, so the short answer is yes. And um, there, are, there are those who view this world as merely a channel way, a preparation for the next world and thus the soul is here in order that it can actualize its mission and then elevate to a new level after this world. However, we could flip it the other way too. According to the Gilgulim tradition, the reincarnation tradition, you could say the opposite. The soul came from the, from the Olam Haba, in a sense that, well, it came from the world, you know, the world of souls and then descended into this world. It's interesting, in the Parsha we read just last week of Sulam Yaakov, of Jacob's Ladder, one of the famous questions there is, why does it say that angels ascend and then descend? It should say they it should say they descend and then ascend. What do you mean they start on earth? The angels start on earth, they ascend and then they descend. The notion of souls and angelic angels being here already. So it could be that the soul is here in this world, in this body, to prepare for the next world. It could be the opposite, that the soul came from the next world, so to speak, in order to be prepared for this world. And it could be neither. It could be that. The soul is here for this world in itself, right? It's true there is um, there is a next world, but the soul is here for the delights, for the delights and and um, and the joy of this world. God was so to speak lonely without creation, and so God allowed souls. It's almost like a spark from the bonfire to go down to earth in order that that delight could exist. Um, and so, um, but yes. The main view of the tradition is exactly as Michael said, that, um, that the body is here to, in some ways to serve the soul and the soul is here to, in order that it can achieve its mission. Um, and ultimately not in order that it can, but ultimately it will then have um, the delights of the next world that lack the body experience. Now um, you, you've heard that story before of, of a model of the next world where people have to feed the person on the other side of the table 
But what's the problem? They have no, um, oh no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They, they have to feed themselves, but they have no elbows. And so they get their arms and they, they use their spoons and they fill their food and then they can't feed themselves. So they're in hell, they're in hell. However, if you were the type of soul who learned in this world what life was about, then you learn very quickly that the way you eat is you feed the person across from you when your elbow doesn't bend and the person across from you feeds you and you're in heaven, you're in heaven. And so if you, if you, if you lived a life in this world that at the end of the day was all about self-interest, you never learned, you never learned what to do with elbows that don't bend, you're going to be in hell. And if you learn something, then your soul's going to be in a place in the room where people understand how to feed the person across from them. As the Rambam explains, the, the soul is an intellectual realm, not just a spiritual realm. And thus it is about not only the doing of good deeds, but the, but the uh, clinging towards the highest truth. Thank you, Michael, for that, that great point. Let me, let me do one more follow-up. Yes, yes, is please. the belief that when the soul goes to heaven, does your perception of yourself and your ego go with it? Or is it an oh. essence that rejoins oh. Hashem? What a question. What a question. Because to what extent is that person in the next world me? If I don't have my body, if I don't have my memory, if I don't have my mind, if I don't have my relationships as they existed, if I don't have everything I identify as my identity, my self-consciousness, if all I have is my soul, to what degree is that me, right? That soul. And one answer is, well, that's the deepest you. That's the deepest you. But the other answer is, no, in order to be you, that soul actually has to be connected to what you what we would call ego. I don't mean ego like in the negative sense, egotistical, ego in the Freudian sense of kind of a sense of self. I mean, it's a complicated idea, but in the sense of like, there is a sense of self that is connected to soul. Now, it almost feels oxymoronic because soul feels like a selfless, holy spark um, of divinity. Um, and self feels like something that's broken off of a collective, of a whole. And so it feels almost like they're at odds. And yet, what's amazing about, from Jewish mysticism is that the soul is not a cookie cutter. I don't go make gingerbread men and I make a, a you know, 8 billion gingerbread men that look identical and I sell them. Every gingerbread man tastes different and looks different and has different ingredients. Every soul, even though we have a commonality and a universality, every soul is fundamentally unique connected to the sense of self. And that's what makes us godlike is not only our universality, but our particularity. What a great, what a great point, Michael. Thank you. Oh, by the way, before we go to our next person, I want to just read Barbara's great comment to me, which she said I could share um, to my point of how to answer my four-year-old. She said, even if I close my eyes, I see you. And even if I cover my ears, I hear you because I love you and care about you so much. It can be the same with God. Even if God has no eyes, you are seen. Even if God has no ears, you are heard. All because you are loved and cared about. So Barbara, I am going to bring that into bed tonight with my four-year-old. And I'm going to, he's going to ask me, and I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to hold my ears, and I'm going to say, Maya Neshama, do I, do I still love you? And she's going to say, yes, of course. And I say, but I can't see you. I can't hear you. How do you know? How do you know? You know, and, uh, and she will understand. 
you'll understand that wrong. That sounds very beautiful. So thank you so much. Yeah, very good. Okay, who wants to jump in here? Okay, maybe this is a little esoteric, but just after Michael's question. So if 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 the soul has sort of a memory of, of who it was and belongs to someone. So what do we think of Gilgulim? I mean, I, I kind of understood that a Gilgul would be someone, you know, like the soul keeps coming back until it gets it right. Um, so would the soul, like it all of a sudden take, there's a Star Trek kind of thing, but anyways, um, <laughs> you know, like the, these, those characters in Deep Space Nine where it was like two people, anyways. Um, so does it suddenly get a sense of someone completely different or is it part of who it used to be onto someone different and then it just keeps going forward? Like I said, this is esoteric, but it's, yeah, yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, amazing, amazing. So um, just to be sure I understood your question there, Lauren. Um, you, you're asking a similar question to Michael, but from a different perspective, as opposed to the heavenly realm, you're asking about the sense of self in a reincarnation sense. Is that correct? Okay, wonderful, wonderful. First of all, just, just before I get to Lauren's great question here, um, I just want to point out, like, like we have a, pan a pandemic, but not, I'm not talking about COVID. We have a pandemic of self-worth. People's self-worth connected to their financial status, right? Oh, I am, how much are you worth? Someone says, oh, I'm worth $2 billion. I'm worth $200,000, right? Here's what I have in my assets. That's my worth. Oh, what a sick state of the world. What a sick state of the world that someone could confuse their sense of self-worth with their financial assets. I mean, it's unbelievable. And it's so pervasive in American culture. Someone says, oh my goodness, I have, I have only you know, uh, $500 in my name, like I'm worth nothing. I'm just nothing, you know, because everything around me tells me that, that um, your riches are what makes you worth something. And then our tradition comes and says, oh my goodness, you want liberation? Forget political liberation. And that, obviously you need that, but you want, you want individual liberation? You need to realign your sense of self-worth on the soul level. When you start to see your value, in your deepest essence of your life force and what you're ultimately here in the world to do. And you know who hopefully gets that more than anyone else? Someone at the beginning of life and end of life, the, the baby. My, my three-year-old has no idea what this money thing is. He sees his older siblings trying to put money in their piggy bank, no interest. He wants to throw it under the couch, throw it over there. No sense of what this money is. Why would I want this stupid thing, you know? And then someone who's dying, hopefully, hopefully they realize at that point, Oh my goodness, I'm not taking this thing anywhere. I can't take one single penny under the ground, right? Um, and so we, and yet we spend a whole life, oh my goodness, all my time is trying to get a little more, get a little more, save a little more. Now, now let me be clear, like money matters. Like it matters to be able to pay our bills, to be able to like take care of our needs. Um, but if we just took one step forward today to realign our self-worth with our essence rather than, you know, catching up to the Joneses, catching up to the Schwartzes, um, then wow, would that be liberation? Now to go to Lauren's great point here, um, reincarnation is the exact same problem, the same predicament that Michael raised about Olam Haba, which is to say that if I've lost my memory of my past life, if I've lost my body, my relationships, my gender, my race, if I've lost my species, if I've lost everything that made me me in my past life, in what sense is this new bodily incarnation even me, right? 
I mean, this is a big philosophical problem. We're not going to resolve that right now. Um, uh, and, and to be sure, there are those people, maybe you're skeptical, maybe it's your own experience, I don't know, who, who, who believe they've tapped into a past life. They have, a, that's what you call deja vu, right? Deja vu, oh my goodness, I've, I've mamish been here before. I've been here before. If you've gone, if you've ever traveled through Eastern Europe and you're like, oh my goodness, I've been here before, not because I saw a picture, not because my Zadie told me a, a story about the shtetl. Like, I know I have been in these woods before. Right. I knew something like that. Like, I, I, I met a fellow once who, who knew he was Rebbe Nachman. I mean, I've met people who, who felt they were a certain animal, whatever the case is. In any case, um, according to one sense, it's really not us. It's really not us. It, it's an egoless state um, that is not about the sense of self. The sense of self is just a construct. According to others, um, the soul is the deepest sense of self that carries, carries over. And then according to another view, um, there are bits and pieces of that past self that follows us. You know, I never know what to do with the, say, the saying, trust your gut. I hate the saying, trust your gut, and I love the saying, trust your gut. I hate the saying, trust your gut, because like, why would you trust the most base part of the self? You know, think about it. Use your reason. Talk with somebody smart. Like, do the work to think through something. Don't just trust your gut. Like, what is your gut anyways? Like, your gut is just scared. Your gut is just hungry. Trust your gut. Right? On the other hand, I love trust your gut. It says there's some deep intuition within you that emerged from somewhere beyond your capacity of reason that is telling you something really strong from a past life, from your childhood, from your soul. Like trust yourself, right? Um, and that's profound also. And that might have to do with a past life also in this and the transmigration of souls. Eddie. Yeah, um, I'm interested to hear what you have to uh, say about uh, specifically because you are also an or organ donor. But is there also like a spirituality between mind, body and soul when you donate an organ? Like, let's say like my body passes away, but my heart saved somebody's life. Do you think like a little piece of my soul also transfers? Or is it individualistic? Or how, how does that? How do you okay, feel about okay. that? Okay, it's, it, uh, it's a great question. It's a great question. So we know that the, the soul stays in this world for a while after death. The soul stays with the body uh, until burial, and according to some sources, even longer. But that is part of why Jews want to bury someone very quickly, because the soul is trapped. The soul is trapped in a dead body, and the soul wants to be liberated to a higher realm. And so we want to bury this person um, and then when we say the neshama should have an aliyah, the soul should have an ascent in the heavens. When we then bury them, the soul ascends. And then we sit shiva and we say kaddish and the soul ascends. We do mitzvot in the person's memory and the soul ascends. The soul goes to a higher heavenly realm. And so the soul is, um, is not only going to elevate based on its own virtue, but based upon people in this world who are a part of helping it to elevate. Um, and so the soul is indeed connected to the body. Um, in, in fact, when in an end of life experience, the soul is almost hovering right above the body that the, 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 the sources say, and it's like, wants to go, and yet it can't go yet. It can't go yet. And so, um, and so, but what part of the body, what part of the body, you know, is the soul kind of connected to? And, um, and what is the role, what is the value of that body when the soul is still there because it hasn't been buried, 
but the body is dead. And so now you cut into the body and the mainstream Jewish traditional position is that you can't cut into the body. You can't do a, uh, what do you call it? When you want to research uh, the body? Uh, autopsy. An autopsy, thank you. You can't go just do an autopsy for no good reason, right? You can't just donate the body to science in theory, right? And so, so too, like this needs to be buried. It needs to be buried in full, a whole bunch of reasons. And yet across the denominations, across um, um, Jewish thought, the value of pikuach nefesh, of saving a life, outweighs the sanctity of the body that has died. And so of course, organs should be donated once the body is completely dead. Um, now there is a debate about cessation of heartbeat versus death of brainstem, um, and when when those should be donated. And indeed, we it's uh, it's actually very interesting on a mystical level what Eddie's asking here because if the soul stays with the body, then what part of the body? If someone donates their heart and their lungs and their liver and their kidney and their cornea, right, and they say and they save seven different people, right, um, maybe the soul goes into those bodies, right? Now, here's what the interesting thing, the soul is fragmented. We think of the soul as a soul entity, but the soul can be fragmented into many parts. That's the whole idea of a soulmate. The whole idea of a soulmate is that different fragments that used to be together were, were fragmented and they come back together to complete the soul. So the body dies and parts of the soul want to ascend to the heavens but other parts are now going to go into the body, a transmigration of souls into the, into the people who received organs, right? Who received organs. Friends, it says at Sinai there were 600,000 there were, um, 600, uh, were 600, male souls. Of course, there were 3 million Jews there. Man, th th uh, that's, those 600,000 are just the men between ages 20 to 60. So that doesn't include the boys up to age 20. It doesn't include the men over 60. It doesn't include the girls and women. So you get the 3 million. If there were only 600,000 souls or whatever, get to the 3 million, how can there be 15 million, uh, whatever number of Jews we have today? And once again, that's the fragmentation of souls. None of us has a complete soul. We have, a, we have fragments. We have sparks of the soul. And indeed, we need each other to be completed. Okay, friends, we're going to have to pause here. I'm sorry to have to pause here, but I can't wait to see you next Tuesday, not only because I love to see you, but also because we get to enter into debate number 27. And in debate number 27, the question is going to be, what is the purpose of the mitzvot, the Taryaga mitzvot? Is it obedience or is it transformation? Is it meaning? Have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.